I should probably do that. When I'm kind of at a point at a sermon where I just need to stop, I just need to say, that's all I got. That's all I have. Uh, so we're, we're kind of toward the end of our sermon series on the first part of the New Testament book of Acts. It's an unusual book, nothing else like it in the Bible, because it describes the first 30 years or so of Christianity and tells various select stories of what happened. We're going to look at two stories today. It reminds me a little bit, when we get into the two stories, you'll see why I say this in a minute, there's a guy named Heinrich Rudolf Hertz, good German name. He was a German physicist in the late 1800s, and he's the guy that discovered radio waves. That's why we call him Hertz, you know, megahertz, gigahertz, all that kind of stuff. And, and of course, radio waves would absolutely re- revolutionize the world, the 20th century with radio, and then the 21st century with wireless internet everywhere. That's all radio waves. But what's interesting is that when he discovered radio waves, he had no idea whatsoever of any kind of application of what they would mean. Here's what he said when he discovered radio waves. He says, I do not think that the wireless waves I have discovered will have any practical application. It's of no use whatsoever. Now, has there ever been a a, a, a more false statement ever said in humanity? It's of no use whatsoever. This is just an experiment that proves we just have these mysterious electromagnetic waves that we cannot see with the naked eye, but they are there. So this guy's really smart, right? I mean, he was a brilliant scientist, discovered radio waves. He had all the information about radio waves you could have. He just lacked imagination of what the implications of the radio waves would be in revolutionizing the world probably as much as anything else that's revolutionized the world. I think of that when I think of how many Christians, maybe most, read these two stories we're going to look at in Acts chapter 9. There's two miracles, and they're kind of like miracles that Jesus did, and there's kind of like nothing really new about them, and we just we believe that they happened, but that's kind of the it. We, just, that's, we kind of stop there, and we have the information right. Our beliefs are right, but we lack the imagination to really understand the implications of how these stories could actually change your life. Luke tells us, the author of Acts, he tells us, kind of in the middle toward the end of Acts chapter 9, that Paul, the guy that was devastating the church, persecuting the church, had experienced the risen Jesus. Jesus appeared to him and he became a believer, became a Christian, and so the persecution of the church stopped, and there was a time of growth, everybody's happy, peace, and so he tells us that Peter came out of Jerusalem and started kind of visiting churches between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean coast. We'll just pick it up in verse 32 where Luke says this. He says, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. Now I put that in yellow because something is happening here. There's a, this was originally written in the Greek language. And that get up, got up, that's just one Greek word. And it's the same word that's often used to describe the resurrection of Jesus, God raising Jesus from the dead. 
Now you may think, well, yeah, it's the word for raising up. It's no big deal. I don't think that's quite right. I don't think it's an accident because get up, got up is kind of a repetition of an image that the Bible wants to come to your mind through this story. And the reason why I say that is because it's not just this story, but the very next story does the exact same thing twice, but intensifies it because of the nature of the story. So what happened is this woman in this town 10 miles away called Joppa, modern-day Jaffa, it's a suburb of Tel Aviv in Israel now, but back then she was a woman in a church in Joppa. She was super well-loved in the church, and she died. And the church was devastated. So they sent, they heard that Peter was just 10 miles away in Lydda, and so they sent two men to go get Peter and see if he'd be willing to come, and who knows, if he would come and, 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 and do something. And so Peter says, yes, he comes. He enters into the room that they had laid her dead body. And so Luke tells us this, says Peter sent them all out of the room, kind of like what he saw Jesus do when Jesus did a miracle similar to this. He's just doing what Jesus did. He sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees. Well, that's not what Jesus did. This is something different. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Who knows what he prayed, but my guess is, are you going to do something here or what? Turning toward the dead woman, he said her name, Tabitha, get up. Same word that we looked at before. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Now, that's in yellow because, again, it's the same word. Just the NIV wanted to make it easier to understand. But it really, what he said was what the ESV says it says, and he gave up, excuse me, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. That's the word that, what it really means. So get up, he raised her up. He says to Aeneas, get up, he got up. Get up to the dead woman, and he raised her up. Now, I, I, I get it. We could all be like Heinrich Rudolf Hertz and go, yeah, okay, fine. I believe Jesus, I believe Jesus, the resurrected Jesus did this through Peter and did the great miracles. And you know, that's interesting language. And of course she did come to back to life from the dead. It's not a resurrection. She's going to die again. It's kind of a resuscitation for lack of a better word, but we could just sort of move on and turn the page and think, okay, yeah, I believe it. Great. It's, it's one more miracle. God's got power. I believe we're good. And we completely have the information right, but we miss the imagination of the implications of what's happening in this story that can absolutely change your life now. Because I don't think it's an accident that Peter and Luke later writing this, it's an accident that is repeated twice in the first story, twice in the second story. Something's going on here where I think it's one of those times in the Bible where the Bible's describing something that happened but what it's really doing is sort of looking you straight in the eye and saying to you, get up. Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Get up. See, because here's the thing. All of us right now, you, me, all of us are living out what is in our head that's an identity of ourselves. We all just have this unconscious identity of who we are. And, you know, we have identity crises because we're in certain groups or certain times where, gosh, is this who I really am? You know, we have imposter syndrome. That's an identity. But we're always living out this identity, and it might change. 
but it's an unconscious identity that when we walk into a room, we sort of put on that character. We put on that personality. This is who we are. This is who I am in this room. And we're always living out a narrative. This is the story my life is in. This is what makes a good day a good day, a bad day a bad day, a good moment a bad moment. You, You get the point. It's the story that we see our life in that sort of just drives our desires, drives our mood, drives our reactions to people, drives what we want, drives our choices. This identity, this narrative that we unconsciously see our lives in. So I think if you understand that, you'll understand what the Bible's trying to tell you in this story. There's a, in one sense, there's a future of your narrative that is absolutely crucial for you to get. If you're a Christian, this, this narrative of your future that the Bible tells you, if you don't get it, if you don't understand it, if that's not this narrative you have in your head, you're not going to be able to live the Christian life. You're always going to make the wrong choices. You're always going to be driven by different desires that take you away from that narrative. Because it's so crucial to see yourself in this story, and that is that because Jesus already rose from the dead... If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to have a resurrection from the dead too. Not a resuscitation like Tabitha, but a resurrected body that's glorious, can't die, whole different ballgame. So just to give you an example, the Bible teaches us a lot, but one example is in Philippians chapter 3, and I want to read first verse 19 because Paul's talking about the other narrative. He describes, this is the narrative of those he, he describes in this as enemies of the cross. So, so he's making a contrast and a comparison. So it's kind of hardcore. He's going to get into some hardcore descriptions that sound a little harsh. He's trying to show you the difference between the two. That's what the Bible does sometimes. So verse 19 of Philippians chapter three, Paul says, these are enemies of the cross. He just says before the verse, in the verse before, he says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. In other words, their destiny is a dead end completely. They're driven by their impulsive desires and their glory is in their shame. The things that they boast about are the things that actually make them less human, not more. And then he says, their mind is set on earthly things. And he's not talking about trees and plants and science. He's talking about the the narrative of the world that is telling you what life should be, what life is about, what your narrative is, and therefore what's valuable, what's important, how you should live. We're always getting this narrative in our heads from the world. That's what Paul's saying. You could live sucked into that narrative and that is a dead end and you'll become less and less human and you'll be driven by impulsive desires. Or if you're a follower of Jesus, you could understand your real future. So the very next verse, verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, he doesn't mean there that we're living so we can have our sins forgiven and when we die, go to heaven. That's not what he means. He means that heaven is coming here. It's, taking, it's going to retake, reinvade, and take over this Genesis 3 world, and we are citizens of the coming kingdom. He's kind of using imagery of the first century Rome and all that kind of stuff with conquering armies and kingdoms. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's coming, so he says, and we eagerly await a savior from there. It's coming here, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king, Christ means king, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he's the coming risen king, he controls everything, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies, 
our bodies that are going to die, our Genesis 3 bodies that are sometimes our friend and sometimes our enemy. He's going to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. It's kind of this glorious body the Bible describes kind of like shining like the sun. When Paul saw the risen Jesus, it was as bright as the sun in this chapter, earlier in this chapter. What, what, what Paul's saying is, is that here's the narrative. There's going to be a time when the risen Christ comes back and everyone is going to have not a completely different body, but a transformed body. Now, a different material, it's going to be different atoms and all that, but it's going to be the same model, so to speak, an upgrade, uh, transformed like the glory of the risen Jesus. Now, we don't have any idea what that is. The Bible never can even describe it, just it says what no eye has seen nor ear heard, heart of anyone imagined. But that's your future. And if you have that narrative in your head, well, it, it changes how you're living now. If, because see, here's the thing. Is C.S. Lewis says this in, in, in one of his writings he wrote in the mid-1900s. And he said, because of this idea and other, other verses that talk about it, he says that because of the future of you as a believer in Christ, if, if you saw, if somebody saw you now, the way you're going to be then when you're transformed into the glory of Christ, if they saw you now, they would be strongly tempted to worship you now. That transformation is going to be that, that kind of transformation. So, so here's the point is that it's not really just about the future. We can be like Heinrich Rudolf Hertz and say, okay, yeah, that's the future. I got it. But it doesn't matter now whatsoever. It doesn't make any difference whatsoever now. Or we can understand what the Bible keeps trying to tell you. And that is that future is who you are now. That future is about everything that has to do with now. The not yet is in a real big way already in your life. So that's why, that's why Paul says in Romans 6, 4, he says, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. And you see, what he's saying is the past resurrection of Jesus is not just about a future resurrection, but it's about a now. We can live differently now. Now, here's the thing. I, I don't know if we're gonna really catch this, what the Bible keeps trying to tell us, what Paul, I'm not gonna read the verse, I'm just gonna tell you, uh, a couple of chapters later, he describes what Jesus has already done in the life of those who are his followers. So he says that you were called he said, those he called, he also justified and made righteous. And those he made righteous, he also glorified. It's weird because he says that in Romans 8.30. He uses the word glorified in the past tense, but he's talking about something. For us, he's talking about something that's the future, not yet. He's talking about when we have our bodies transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body when Jesus returns. But he says it in the past tense. Now, this is going to sound real trippy, but here's the thing. God is outside of time. And so there's a real sense in which God sees you as you're going to be when you're glorified. And so since that's how God sees you, Paul says it's as good as done. If God's the one who does it and in God's outside of timeness, he's already done it. When he describes you as glorified, it's not you will be glorified, but that you've already been glorified. That's, 
That's who you already are. Here, here, here's, here's what it is. That God right now sees you as you're going to be when you're transformed to the glorified body. He sees you that way right now. That's how he sees. I love the 11 o'clock service with all the amens. Uh, but he sees you as that way right now. Now, I don't know. I, again, I don't want you to be like Heinrich Rudolf Hertz, where you just sort of hear that. It, oh, yeah, that's great. goes in one ear out the other, and you go on, and you can't wait for the Chiefs game. What I really want you to get, what I really want you to understand is what does that really mean? That God, when he sees you, I just want you to get it because so often we have this guilt because we live in these Genesis 3 bodies and we get sucked into the wrong narrative. We have this guilt about sin in our lives, failure, regret, hopelessness, depression, and we go through really hard times. But if we really caught it, if we really understood that right, and we, because of that guilt, we stay away from God. We don't want to open our Bibles. We feel guilty to come to church. But if we really understood how God is seeing you right now, glorified, made righteous, that right now, that's how he sees you. What, well, how would that change your relationship with God, you think? How would that change your life, do you think? If you, if you saw yourself in this, the not yet is already. The Bible is telling you, get up. Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Every day, no matter what mud you're in, cesspool you're in, quicksand you feel trapped in, the Bible says, get up. Jesus Christ heals you. You're already glorified. You're already made righteous. Get up. That's why Paul could say in Ephesians 2, 6, when he says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. Now, I don't know about you. My memory's fading. I don't remember that happening to me. I don't remember being raised up. Wait, did I miss it? Did I get left out? Now he's talking about something that you, you haven't experienced yet in the, in the experience, that, but, it, but in God's, the way God sees you, it's already happened. He's, because Jesus has already been raised from the dead, and because you're going to be raised from the dead with a body like Jesus' resurrected body, you're already, it's, it's, again, it's trippy, but it's already happened. You're already raised up. You're already seated in the heavenly realms, in the, in the kingdom of God. You've already got your spot. So, so the thing is, is get, if, if you could go back in time, and let's say you go back in time to 7 AD, and you see the Apostle Peter, the one who's saying all this, get up, they got up. If, if, if you saw the Apostle Peter as a seven-year-old, or let's make it a 13-year-old, you know, the most irritating age. Uh, let's just, this is, this is, you saw the Apostle Peter as a 13-year-old. And he's got attitude, and he thinks he knows it all, and he sort of thinks you're dumb, and he's looking at you, and, and, but you're looking at, that's the Apostle Peter. I, you wouldn't get sucked into thinking of Peter as the 13-year-old. You would constantly be thinking of the Peter, all that he would become when he became older as a disciple, apostle of Jesus. That's Peter. Don't nobody hurt him. That's Peter. That's Peter. Because you would know the future. It changes everything about how you see him at 13. 
Well, that's not so hard for us to understand. So it shouldn't be that impossible for us to get what the Bible's trying to tell you, that God, even more so, who knows the future, is seeing you right now. You're a a bratty 13-year-old, but he sees you right now as you will be. Already raised, already seated. So that's why, catch this, that's why this this passage twice uses this word saints. Now, I love the NIV. It's my favorite translation, but if all you read was the NIV, you missed it. They did a good job trying to translate it, but they said things like the Lord's people and believers, translating that Greek word that gets translated in other Bibles as the word saints. Now, when we think of saints... We think of something that happened later in history, after the Bible, later in church history, where they started, had a certain classification, classification, a special classification of Christians that because of their saintly character, they were called saints. We call somebody a saint, oh, she's a saint, because of her character. That's not at all what the Bible's doing when it uses the word saints. I just want you to, sh- I want you to see something here. That in the, for example, in the ESV, they're translating it kind of literally from the Greek to the English, which is not always the best way to do it, but here it helps. Verse 32, where it says, Peter came down also to the saints. Now it said the Lord's people in the NIV. The saints who lived in Lydda. And then verse 41, then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Saints is this Greek word that gets translated in the word saints, but it just means holy ones. It's weird because it's not really a description completely of all the Christians we know, and certainly not you and me all the time. Holy ones is always the term used, though, 60 times in the New Testament and more for all Christians. Every Christian, every follower of Jesus is called a holy one, a saint. So that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says to all Christians, all followers of Jesus, you were washed, but not just washed as if your sins are forgiven. More than that, you were sanctified. Now, you can kind of see the word saint in there. It's, this is the verb form. This is having, you've been made a holy person. You've been holified, if we wanted to coin a word. You've been washed, but not just washed. You've been made holy, a saint, a holy one. And you were justified, made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king. He's the risen king. He's the one who did it. And by the spirit of our God. Now, I want you to catch what he's saying. Something is true of you now. The spirit of God is in you. The spirit of God, because of what Jesus has done, has washed you, has completely made you holy and completely made you righteous because of the authority of Jesus and because the Spirit of God, well, he says just a couple verses later, he explains more. He says, do you not know that your body, this Genesis 3 body, that has lowly body, Paul says, has to be transformed. Even now, though, because of the future transformation, even now, the the, the not yet is already, even now, your body right now is a temple, very religious word, It just meant this is where God resides. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The reason why the Holy Spirit can indwell you as his temple is because he's made you holy, righteous. And Excuse me. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So glorify God with your body, in your body. 
You can, it changes everything. If you understand the spirit of God in you, it changes, you really can get up. Not perfectly, not where you're not gonna still have problems, not where you're not gonna still fall, but every time you fall, you get up. You never fall to the point where you can't get up. Imagine telling yourself that. There's a story, a video that went viral a few years ago because it's very emotional. A, a, a man who's been in prison off and on for 20 years. For, he, he got into drug abuse, drug addiction, gambling, petty theft, all this stuff. And so he's one more time appearing before the judge, one more time going to be sent to prison. You can see his attitude. He just doesn't care. Been here, done that. But then something strange happens because it turns out the judge was his friend in middle school. And he didn't know until she says it. Let's take a moment here and watch this. F15-13303. Okay, Mr. Booth, I have a question for you. Yes, ma'am. Did you go to Nautilus for middle school? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry to see you there. I always wondered what happened to you, sir. Oh, my goodness. This is the nicest kid in middle school. Oh, my goodness. He was the best kid in middle school. I used to play football with him and all the kids. And look what has happened. I'm so sorry. To oh, my goodness. Mr. Booth, I hope you were able to change your ways. Good luck to you. Oh, my goodness. What's sad is how old we've become. Oh, my goodness. Good luck to you, sir. I hope you were able to come out of this okay and just lead a lawful life. Now, I kind of went down the rabbit hole and did the rest of the story. This was years ago. Turns out he went to prison. He got released 10 months later on good behavior. He said that encounter with her reminded him of everything he had the dreams for about his life when he was a kid that he somehow got away from. So he went to prison and started reading books on business and started thinking, I'm going to absolutely change my life. He got out of prison, and now six, eight years later, he's a manager of a business in Miami. There's a whole story about him on Miami local news. But you can see right there where he just sort of all of a sudden realizes back in time what he wanted to be and who his friend was and the life he had and how it got off track somehow. And you can just see him, oh, my goodness, crying, oh my goodness. I kind of wonder if in, at some point in the future we really see who we really were now, are now, because of the future and because of the spirit of God in us, well, who we really are now instead of this narrative we get sucked into. If we might not have the same, oh my goodness, this, this sense, I, I missed out on what I could have been, what could have happened. I could have gotten up every day, no matter what. I could get up. Because I, in God's sight, am already glorified. I'm already made righteous. I'm already holy. And the Holy Spirit indwells me, my body, as his temple. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we don't have to get sucked into this narrative that's a dead end. This narrative that's driven by impulsive desires and makes us less human but that you have already risen from the dead. Therefore, you've already raised us in Christ and seated us and you've glorified us already because the future is who you see us as now. And so in a very real way, this is who we should see ourselves as now. Glorified, risen, 
temples of the Holy Spirit, holy and made righteous. Amen.